And it just goes to show that any simple conclusion belays the mass complexity that goes into labor resource planning. It's not new tech exists, therefore job goes. Right? It involves all of these things that we talked about in regards to the labor equation. And so it is it's something that your your listeners should be incredibly mindful of. You can't paint anything with a broad brush. Just because it happened in one industry doesn't mean it's going to happen to another. Just because it happened in one function doesn't mean it's going to happen to another. And you can't make that simple conclusion that because this tech exists, that job will go. This is the Rebel HR Podcast. If you're a professional looking for innovative, thought-provoking information in the world of human resources, this is the right podcast for you. Rebel on, HR Rebels. All right, Rebel HR listeners, I'm extremely excited to have our guest Jeff Wald on today. Jeff is the best-selling author of two books, including The End of Jobs, The Rise of On-Demand Workers and Agile Corporations. Jeff is the founder of Work Market, which was purchased by ADP in 2018. Several other technology companies, including Spinback, a social sharing platform. Uh, He's also an angel investor, a startup investor, um, and is on numerous public and private uh, boards of directors. Uh, And I would be remiss if I didn't also mention that uh, in his past, he was also um, a auxiliary police officer. So maybe we can explore that a little bit. But welcome to the show, Jeff. Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. <laughs> Absolutely. And I'm, I'm really excited about today's conversation because we're going to be talking all about the future of work. And, uh, and uh, Jeff recently announced a $10 million future of work prize. Uh, and, and I just Maybe we can start with just tell me a little bit about what that project is and and uh, and what your perspective is on the future of work. Sure. Well, let's uh, let's stay on the project for a hot second, which is uh, I came up with this idea because writing a book is really hard and it sucks. <laughs> it just sucks. It's like it took me seven years to write this thing. And now look, part of that was because I was building a company and you know. We were growing the business and blah, 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 blah. And I finally got the space to finish it when we sold the company to ADP. But I still only was able to get like 140 pages out. And uh, I came up with the idea uh, to ask some of the men and women that I had had the pleasure of interviewing, that I had the pleasure of meeting during my time at Work Market, during my time at ADP. And these, uh, I asked them to write their view on what they thought the world of work looked like in 2040. Look, these are men and women that are shaping the future of work, heads of some of the largest staffing firms, heads of the largest labor unions, CHROs from some of the world's largest companies, heads of industry associations, regulators. What do they see when they peer into their crystal ball? Because each Mm -hmm. one of them has a very different framework, has a very different lens through which they're looking. And so, the idea of getting all these different perspectives made the book much more interesting to me and certainly much easier to finish because you know you had to tom sawyer it and you get a bunch of other people to do the work and (laughs) and so as i was thinking about how to create a dynamic that incentivized them uh i am currently an advisor to the x prize and i thought i'd borrow a page from the x prize and put up a $10 million prize for whoever is the most correct in 2040. And so 
I am so honored the people that agreed to do it and we had a lot more submissions than the 20 that are in the book. I parted down, uh, pared it down to the lads at the top 20 and they're, they're phenomenal. It just, it makes the book much more enjoyable uh, to read. Absolutely. Genius. I love that. Tom Sawyer. It. <laughs> so as, as you're walking through, you know, the, collective brain trust of, of a number of experts. Are there any common themes that have presented themselves or, or um, that, that really spoke to you as, as intriguing? So what's interesting is that there is not a lot of overlap in their prediction sets. We have some people that have a very dystopian future in 2040. Workers are getting screwed and it's just it's it's a bad scene. Hmm. We have some writers that are very utopian. The world's a wonderful place, free from want. Robots and AI are performing all of our mundane tasks, and humanity is focused on leisure and art and science and love and family, and it's it's a wonderful world. And I have one writer who's actually what I think this might be my favorite piece, although, you know, maybe we want to strike that from the record. I'm not sure I should go on record with saying which one's my favorite. <laughs> but uh, he basically is like, eh, everyone's going to, everything's going to be the same. <laughs> a little change here, a little change there. But for the most part, same stuff, same shit, different day. And he, look, they're all brilliant and they all have a very interesting point of view. And again, they're seeing the world through the lens in which they have a massive expertise in. But it is... It is very, very cool to 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 get their different perspectives. But in terms of the under any the the common thread, I would say this: every person I interviewed, so that includes the twenty that wrote for the book, that includes the forty that were a part of this process that got winnowed down to the twenty, and it includes about two hundred other people. I asked everybody the same question at the end, which was, "What advice would you give to somebody just entering the workforce now?" And there was a common thread in their answers. Their answers basically could be summarized as you have to be a lifelong learner because the rate of change is massively accelerating. And I will tell you, lifelong learner is one of those terms people are like, oh, lifelong learner, being said too much. <laughs> I would say we are not nearly saying it enough. People need to be a lifelong learner. The data is clear around the time compression on how quickly a skill becomes non-monetizable. And if you are not constantly learning the new skills, the new technologies, the new processes in your function, you have about four years before you start to really be put behind. Interesting. Yeah, totally overused term. A lot of buzzword in, in lifelong learner. But but very, I mean, very appropriate. Look at just look at this last year. Mm -hmm. If you weren't nimble, agile, open. Uh, flexible, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm on video calls pretty much 90% of my day at this point. Mm -hmm. Prior to 2020, it was maybe one a month, you know, and it was all phone calls. And, but, um, when you can't have in-person meetings, you, you have to find ways to connect with people. And uh, yeah, if, I mean, if you were, if you were obstinate <laughs> or, not interested in learning how to use a video call system that you got left behind. You do get left behind. But on the flip side, <laughs> I will tell you, my man, that earlier today, somebody emailed me and said, hey, I know we have a Zoom, but can I just give you a call on your mobile? I was like, good God, yes, please. <laughs> please. <laughs> that would be delightful. I am with you. 
I'm with you. I I get um I get the zoom fatigue, and then it's the um, it's it's like you just get like these glossed over eyes. It's like being in a car too long, and you're mm-hmm. staring at the road, and it's just like you're not even really paying attention to what's going on. It's yeah. <laughs> I get that. <laughs> I mean, not not for this particular conversation, obviously. This one we're very dialed into, but other conversations. Right, hundred percent, hundred percent. I haven't been on many zooms today, so I'm I'm good. I'm good. Excellent. I appreciate you humoring me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love it, and um, yeah, and I think that the same could probably be true for an organization if an organization isn't learning and adapting. Um, very true. Similar, right? Very true. And look, and the a great example of that are organizations embracing of remote work so if you don't mind when we can we do we do a quick dive here on remote work let's do it yep so well i should i should say that the basis of the book is let's look at history let's look at data let's think about how companies actually engage workers and let's use that evidence set in order to make predictions about the future of work because i get very frustrated with people making predictions that have no basis in, in evidence. I appreciate they like to hear themselves talk, but I like to tell them to back up what they're saying. So <laughs> therefore, let's talk about remote work and let's look at history and data. 10 years ago, 1.5% of the US workforce worked remotely. Now, remote work has a very specific definition. It means more than 50% of the time you're not in that office. And so if you are not in that office, but up to 50% of the time, so you're there 60% of the time or 70% of the time, you have a flexible work arrangement, but you're not considered a remote worker. Hmm. The remote work market grew by 100% from 2010 to 2020, doubled, which is very unusual in the world of labor statistics. Only happens when there is a new technology enabling it as Zoom and WebEx and all these other things, as well as Asana and Basecamp and all the project management softwares, those two technologies enabled more remote work. And it also only happens when you start with a very small base, as we do with the 1.5%. So we got to 3%, but there were impediments. And some of those impediments were mindset-driven, to your point, around organizations having to evolve. So the two impediments, first, mindset. And we all know that boss or that organization that says, yeah, I don't care all the studies say that remote workers are happier, they're healthier, they're more productive, they're more engaged, they have higher retention rates. I don't care about all that. I think productivity happens when people are present. I think magic happens in the office. And that mindset would be an example, to your point, around organizations not being flexible and enabling the new processes and new technologies. The second impediment were policies, procedures, and infrastructure. It's one thing to say, okay, yeah, you can work remotely. It's another to make sure that you can access all the company's systems outside the four walls. If you tell me I can work remote, but I can't access anything, then did you really enable remote work? No. If you tell me I can work remote, but I have to remind everybody I'm not there, and therefore they have to put in a Zoom or some other option for every single meeting, then have you really enabled them remote work? No, you're, you're making me really struggle to become a part of the process. And clearly in March of 2020, both of those things had to change. Mindset had to change. Policies, procedures, and infrastructure had to be put in place. And so at the height of the pandemic, we had 40% of the U.S. workforce working remote. It's important to remember, by the way, that 42% is the natural limit in the U.S. economy. Because Hmm. clearly people in manufacturing and transportation and logistics in, in a lot of retail and entertainment 
and a host of other industries can't work remotely. So 42% is the natural limit, and we were at 40%. Hmm. And then the big question is, where are we going to be in the God willing soon post-COVID world? And the answer seems to be around 8%, meaning organizations are starting to move. And 8%, again, is remote work, flexible work arrangements, 32 to 33%. And so, again, remembering that 42% is the is the natural limit, so huge percentages, 25% or 20% for remote work, and you know upwards of 75% for flexible work arrangements of the people that can do these things. Those are examples of organizations starting to adjust because what remote work used to be was a pull function. It was the employee asking to do it, and the employer mostly saying no. And now we're starting to see it become a push function as employers say wow, I can get more productivity, I can get higher engagement, I can open up my my labor clouds to entirely new talent pools, mm-hmm. I can get the benefits of all of the productivity and happiness and all those other things, and I can reimagine how we work, and I can also you know, maybe spend less on office space, but we'll see how that actually plays out. Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, that's really interesting to... Uh to think through, you know, my, my organization, you know, this is an anecdotal example, but my organization is a manufacturing mm-hmm. organization, but the positions that could work from home did. Of course. And, and what was interesting, because we've brought some people back into the office, um, there are some collaborative interchanges that are required, especially between the essential, you know, manufacturing population and maybe the you know, engineers or professional populations that can partially work from home, but do need to be physically present. But I will tell you that people want flexibility. (laughs) So if we're not able to offer it, um, you know, somebody else that does offer flexibility is going to, going to grab that talent. I mean, that's just a, that's a natural progression. You are 100% correct. That is what will happen. And, but to your point, some jobs enable it, some jobs, some functions don't. Yeah. And not only do we want flexibility, and that is a very important thing, that's what all the survey data would tell us about what employees want post-COVID. They actually don't really want to go full remote, and they don't want to be 9 to 5, 5 days a week. They want that middle ground. Like Mm. 90% of employees want that middle ground. But it's important to note that they don't want to go full remote because in addition to wanting flexibility, we also want that human connection. People, (laughs) you know, actually want to be in the office. They want to see their colleagues. They want to be around the water cooler talking about American Idol or I don't know if that show is still on, but whatever. I think so. They want to have that conversation. (laughs) I haven't watched it since Sanjaya was on and and that I don't even know how many decades ago that was, but I think it's still on. (laughs) Well, good for them. I haven't watched it since Kelly and Justin. I went, I was season one and one and done. Old school. That's American how we do. Idol. Yeah, that's good, man. That's good. You you really are a trendsetter and a leader in the space. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's fascinating. I think um, you know that's one of the challenges I think that HR is facing is it, there's there is we're kind of stuck in the middle of the push pull, right? There's there's those managers that are maybe their mindset is well, we think we should be back in the office and they're you know, kind of pull an HR one direction and then you've got employees who are asking for it. And then there's a lot of people kind of in the middle. Um, but, but I, I kind of feel like that's, that's HR all the time, whether it's 2020 or, or 2002, 
you know, we're always kind of, you know, being pulled in different directions depending upon uh, the uh, kind of what's happening in the world of work. And so as we start to fast forward and look at, at the future of work, um, you know, one of the big challenges that I think we're starting to question right now is uh, specific to the gig economy. And, you know, I think, you know, my tendency is I'm a creature of habit. So I tend to think, okay, this position, let's go build a position profile. Let's go hire it. You know, we'll hire a full-time person and, you know, we'll, we'll just follow the same approach because that's what we've done for the last two decades. So we might as well just keep doing it. But one of the questions I have is the, is as we start to look at the, you know, kind of the on-demand labor market, um, how are organizations going to be able to adapt to individuals who maybe don't want a full-time job or maybe want that flexibility, but don't even want to necessarily have one company to be flexible with maybe, (laughs) how are we going to be able to work through some of those challenges as we start to fast forward through the years here? Well, let's start the conversation with history and data. You know, the on-demand economy is not anything new. People think that it, it got invented with Uber. On-demand has been here for generations, and it has been a very large part of the labor force for generations. Dating back to, uh, well, freelancers have been around since the beginning of the, the, the job functions or a couple hundred years, but the temp market started with mm-hmm. uh, Kelly Girls after uh, the Second World War. And so this has been a very important part, and it's been about 25% of the labor force for a very, very long time. Mm-hmm. Now, in 2010, for some reason, everybody started saying, okay, but by 2020, it's going to be 50%. And that was one of those predictions that I was like, oh, man, I got to write a book because that, that, that's just, that doesn't make any sense. Like that, <laughs> that's, a, that's a bad prediction. It's not based on evidence, and yet everybody keeps saying it. And what people were saying or seeing in some very from some data from 2009 to 2010 was the growth in the on-demand economy from in that that, that one year from 09 to 010 from 09 to 10 um and they just started extrapolating and said well if it continues to grow at that rate you're like <laughs> okay but economies move in cycles and you're looking at at one point in the economic cycle where there's always expansion as people come out of recession on-demand economy always increases and yet, and everybody took it and just ran with it. Look, there are certain, and so what we did see, by the way, from 2010 to 2020, was the on-demand economy increase in 25% of the labor force to about 28%. Well, that's ballpark down. what happened, <laughs> right? That is, yep. and look, it, it's hard to find data on this because we have survey data from our friends at Upwork, we have survey data from our friends at MBO Partners, we have survey data from the unbelievable experts of the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, But uh, the ADP Research Institute, which I had the pleasure of working with as they put together a gig economy report, used not only survey data, but um, the data from ADP's vast data lakes in order to be able to put together a view as to what really happened over the last 10 years. And so theirs is the report I kind of tend to double click on but uh, always, my view is always informed by the other data sources. And so, look, we saw a 3% market share gain. That's nothing to sneeze at. You know, over a 10-year period, that's a substantive move in the labor markets. And that was ballpark 
the most intelligent prediction one, one would have made. That's what a thoughtful prediction would have been in 2010. Mm-hmm. Now that we sit in 2020, you know what everybody's saying? Oh, by 2030, it's 50%. <laughs> like, you yeah, don't just... get to do that. <laughs> there oh, are certain yeah. job functions and there are certain industries that lend themselves very well to an on-demand labor construct because the work can be disaggregated. It can be broken into tasks. It can be done by on-demand labor and it can be re-aggregated and delivered to a client. And there are certain industries and certain functions where it just will never work either from a business process standpoint or from a regulatory standpoint. Mm -hmm. And so the idea that there's going to be this huge growth in the on-demand economy is insane. It will never happen unless there are fundamental changes to business processes and fundamental changes to the regulatory environment in the United States, neither of which are, are coming in the near term with definitively like those will not happen in the near term. And so I would argue based on my research, that if we looked at every single job that could, that where the business process allowed it and the regulatory environment allowed it, your absolute peak is about 40%. Absolute Hmm. peak. And I don't think we get anywhere close to that peak anytime soon. And so will the on-demand labor market continue its slow and steady growth? Yeah, I think so. No question. But I will tell you this. I have never been in the meeting, and I've been in thousands of these meetings, where, where a CEO has said, you know what? I want to convert all my W-2 workers to 1099s. And Jeff, I need your software to do that because our software was the piece of software that enabled companies to do it. That's what work market was. I've never been in that meeting. You know, meaning I've been in a lot. I've been in the, yeah, we use a lot of 1099s, but we're getting really nervous about the regulatory environment. And we're, I think we're going to stop using 1099s. Our lawyers and procurement and HR are pushing us to just, just use full-time workers and part-time workers, part-time W-2s. And so I, I think that's what we're going to do. That meeting a bit in a few hundred times. Sure. Yeah, and I just think about you know jobs with long time to competencies. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't it it doesn't make sense to invest heavily in training somebody who is potentially able to pick up an app and go work someone somewhere else <laughs> and waste all that training energy. Right? I mean, it's just it doesn't make sense. So you are one hundred percent correct. I will tell you little anecdote is that as I was writing the book, I started to put together what I called the labor equation. And the labor equation was where are those breakpoints where you would use a full-time worker versus a part-time worker versus a temp versus a freelancer. And uh, I started getting some calculus going, including things around ramp-up time, to your point, mm-hmm. around cost. Certainly cost is a variable in that equation around the intellectual property involved, the customer touch points, the institutional knowledge being involved, the complexity of the business process, the regulatory environment, and a host of other variables. And there's a whole chapter in the book called The Labor Equation. But uh, I literally got a little beautiful mind on it. I was writing it all up on the walls, on the windows in my office. And the person actually, and they were all these complex series of calculus equations with something called a system of equations. And the person that taught me calculus actually showed up at my office one day. And she looked at the windows and she's like, what's this? I was like, oh my gosh, check this out. This is a system of equations around how companies engage labor. And she looked at it. She looked left. She looked right. She looked at me and she goes, this is gibberish. This is nothing. (laughs) This makes zero sense. You remember nothing of what I taught you. And that person, by the way, is my mother, who is a calculus professor. And she just was very, very disappointed. (laughs) 
Oh, man, that, that's a blow to the ego. I'm sorry about that, Jeff. Oh, she's very unimpressed with everything I do. <laughs> I'm never getting over that hump. You know what? She probably set you up for success by uh, by, by raising you that way. Have you done the calculus on that one? Uh, I tried. It turned out my math was wrong. <laughs> oh, yeah. Kudos to all the mothers out there dealing for dealing with people like me and Jeff. <laughs> Amen to them. Yeah. But it's, that's fascinating. I think, um, you know, that's one of those big questions. Yeah, one of those predictions that, yeah, half of all of us are going to be, you know, contingent workers um, is is an interesting prediction. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's been interesting just in my world, in the world of manufacturing, we have seen a, a heavy increase in leveraging contingent, you know, temporary staff mm-hmm. to <laughs> eliminate some of the churn uh on the selection side of the business where it's almost like the approach is let's test drive this employee and see if they're the right fit um but then typically what you will see is then as soon as the company is able to convert to a full-time employee and they feel like they've got the you know the the individual uh trained where they want and that the behaviors where they want then they yeah they go to a w-2 so yeah, that that'll be interesting to see where that goes. And then to your point, the other big concern or or change is the regulatory environment. You know, we that that may work now, depending on what this administration does. It may not work tomorrow. So very true. <laughs> Got to be nimble. So, all right. So let's let's keep going with this trend because I'm just I'm fascinated to hear more about this research. So the other I think the other prediction is. Our jobs are going to be taken by robots. So uh, am I going to be replaced with an HR robot? <laughs> I will tell you, HR is one of the many, many functions that I think has very limited risk uh, to, to displacement. <laughs> so love the framing of your question. The headlines that you hear are 50% of jobs are going to be lost to robots and AI. That's the headlines that make their way. And part of that is... Not poor analysis, because the studies that are referenced, McKinsey and PricewaterhouseCoopers and uh, Oxford University, uh, Peter, uh, yeah, and um, that's not what those studies say. And so that's not bad analysis. That is social media-driven headlines, because the headline of the report is 50% of jobs susceptible to automation. You can be susceptible to automation all day long. It doesn't mean the job's displaced. The job of waiter and waitress is susceptible to automation, right? I don't need someone to hand me a piece of paper with what's on the menu. I don't need them to give me the recommendations. AI can do that. I don't need them to tell me what wine goes without AI can do that. I don't need them to write down what I want. I can click a bunch of things and it can be sent into the kitchen. I don't need them to do anything except physically move food from one place to another, which quite frankly, a little robot could do. All that technology exists. But do I think that job's in a high degree of probability of being removed? No, because it's not that simple. Just because a tech exists doesn't mean a job gets displaced. Mm. So even though waiters and waitresses are very high on the list of jobs susceptible to automation, as consumers, we don't want that experience. And so even though the tech has existed for 10 years to displace every waiter and waitress, we have seen little to no job displacement due to technology. So it's important to look at history, data, and how companies engage workers. And we can go through examples from the ATM. We can go through examples in the truck driving industry, which I've done very deep dives on on both. 
But the point is, when we have an industrial revolution, and this is our fourth industrial revolution, uh, mechanization is the first, electrification the second, computerization the third, each time we go through these three phases where there's the freakout phase. And the freakout phase is, oh my gosh, the spinning jenny and the weaving loom and the cotton gen exists and there'll be no jobs anywhere. Mm, okay. And then we get to that second phase, which is the phase of economic and societal disruption because jobs are lost and they're lost in mass and they're not lost overly quickly in the first three industrial revolutions they will be lost relatively quickly in this one but you have actually a lot of dislocation that occurs and then you very quickly get into that third phase and that third phase is more jobs are created either in the industries where jobs were displaced because they massively increased the amount of productivity and therefore more units are needed and therefore even though the number of jobs per unit is decreased the number of units increases therefore the number of jobs increases or in other industries and yada 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 and we right now are in that second phase of the fourth industrial revolution we just passed the freak out phase because mm. we all freaked out about it now we're in that economic dislocation phase and jobs are starting to disappear but when you look historically there are three things that are very very clear almost uninterrupted trends in the world of work one is there are ever more jobs just when you look at the number of jobs on the planet it just keeps going up number two the number of hours that people work keep going down almost uninterrupted since the beginning of the word job which is about a 200 year old institution and number three is increasing standards of living almost uninterrupted just we keep having higher and higher standards of living while we work fewer and fewer hours. Those things are uninterrupted. And so to think that it's going to be different this time, might it be? Sure. But it just seems unlikely. I can't, I don't know the case in which it becomes that true dystopian future. And if I can jump in on the ATMs, if I could double click on that, is that okay? Sure. So the ATM is an example we talk about in the book. The ATM was invented in 1969, but it took 25 years, 1995, till the ATM appeared in every single bank branch. So again, just because the tech exists doesn't mean that it's ready to take the job. The ATM doesn't disguise what it wants to be, right? It's called an automated teller machine. It's a machine that is automating the job of the teller. It is very <laughs> clear what it is in its name. At the time, 1995, where the ATM appeared in every single bank branch. There were 500,000 bank tellers in the United States of America. What do you think everyone predicted in 1995 about the bank teller job? Gone. Gone, right? Just gone. <laughs> no more bank tellers. All the bank tellers are gone. How many bank tellers do you think there are in the United States today? Ooh. Mm. Oh, you didn't know I was going to ask you questions. No, yeah, no. Now my, my, my beautiful mind calculus is going away. <laughs> I'm going to go... Um, 300,000. There are 600,000 bank tellers in the United <laughs> States today. I was halfway and there. Here's the thing. Here's, well, you're, look, your guess was better than most. <laughs> I'll say that. Um, the number, when you look at, and, and this is what one needs to do when you think about a job function. There are 704 basic different job functions. And when we look at the component tasks of each job function, we need to understand how many of those component tasks are repetitive high volume processes? If 100% of the task is a competitive high volume process, then unless there's some other variable like 
the customer service environment or things like that, like our waiter and waitress example, that job historically is fully lost. All people that work in that function are eliminated over time, 100% of the component tasks. As you start moving away from 100%, you start to see the job losses start to move almost in tandem as you decrease. We go from 100% repetitive high volume tasks to 100% job loss down to 75% and 75%. And then somewhere around 50, it breaks. It breaks and almost goes to zero. So when there are about 50% or fewer of the repetitive high volume tasks, almost no job losses. Hmm. And so when we have that 50 to 75%, we see that somewhat geometric relationship of it decreasing. But when we look at the bank teller, about 60% of the bank teller job was that repetitive high volume task of giving out cash and taking in cash. And so that would lead us to believe that somewhere around 50%, maybe 60% of bank teller jobs will go. And interestingly, that's kind of actually what happened, is that the average number of tellers per branch went from 21 down to 13. But the number of bank branches in the United States nearly doubled hmm. because of banking deregulation. And it just goes to show that any simple conclusion belays the mass complexity that goes into labor resource planning. It's not new tech exists, therefore job goes, right? It involves all of these things that we talked about in regards to the labor equation. And so it is, it's something that your, your listeners should be incredibly mindful of. You can't paint anything with a broad brush. Just because it happened in one industry doesn't mean it's going to happen to another. Just because it happened in one function doesn't mean it's going to happen to another. And you can't make that simple conclusion that because this tech exists, that job will go. Is it possible? Sure, but you need to really use those critical thinking skills and really look at the data, really look at history, and then you can make an assessment as to what may happen in the near term and in the medium term on jobs in that function in that industry. Well said. I, I, it's it's a really interesting corollary. I just when you articulated that point, it's it's to me it just reminded me of the theory of economics where it's supply and demand and how many times do people think about demand and forget about supply you know you know just cuz we're not using as much oil doesn't necessarily mean that the price of oil will plummet because we can manipulate the supply that's why oil prices go up and down and won't go to zero <laughs> right? i will tell you idea, it is right? fundamental in all of my analysis is that it really comes down to supply and demand when people look at different job functions and what's happened to workers, at the end of the day, you have this power balance between companies and workers, and there are fewer jobs than there are workers. That's just how things have existed in through all of human history, except right. in specific job functions, in specific technologies, in specific geographies. Right? If you're a blockchain developer right now or a cybersecurity <laughs> person, there is a huge supply and demand imbalance in your favor. There are many fewer of you than there are people that want to employ you. And in those circumstances, by the way, we tend to see those workers move to that on-demand construct that you referenced earlier of, I don't want to work for one company. I'll do some consulting gigs here, there, and I'll work from the beach. Right, right. Yeah, and I think it's so important, and it's it's a, a great reminder. I mean, I, I don't know how many times I get into an argument or a heated debate with a hiring manager that thinks, well – you know, we, we can't pay this because that's higher than we typically pay. And, you know, the argument that we have to make in HR is, well, you may not want to pay it, but the market is dictating that you will 
or you won't fill it. That it's it's a it is an equation, but it's not 100%. necessarily an equation people like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I I think it's yeah it's it's interesting um, to to reflect on that. Very well said. So um, I, I'm glad I'm not going to be uh, replaced by a robot. Although I do have a a funny story. I do actually have an HR peer who is a robot at work because she works remote. And they literally bought a robot for her to interface with people with through a monitor in the office because she couldn't be in the office. This was before COVID. This was this little thing like moves around the office. Yeah. Fantastic. It's like, yeah, like a what's that 80s movie with the I don't know. Rocky. That was Rocky four. Yeah. Rocky. It's like the robot from Rocky with the monitor head on it. Yep. (laughs) So cool. Not my company. I, I can't take credit for that. One of the things that I, I thought was really interesting, and I, I, I think it might be worth digging into a little bit, is the idea that jobs haven't existed for more than a few centuries. Mm-hmm. And that what we assume is normal and has been around forever is actually a relatively new concept. So can you explore that for us and, sure. and uh, help us understand kind of that historical background? Well, in order for there to be a job, there needed to be a company. And companies as entities didn't really start to exist except for a few hundred years ago. We had the first few companies in like the late 1600s, mostly exploration companies. Uh, But the first companies that then had factories started in the first industrial revolution. And so you're looking at the late 1700s where the first time where a worker comes and starts going to a job every day. The word itself is only about 180 years old, where people mm. actually called it a job. But you couldn't have a job until you had a company that employed people at scale. And that just didn't start happening, except for you know, 200, 250 years ago. But what people were doing is they were offering their skills in a marketplace to say, hey, I can do a quick job here doing this, I can do a job there. They were freelancers, right? They gig economy. A portfolio of work. <laughs> the gig economy is hardwired in our experience for thousands of years. A job and going to a place of work, whether we physically go to it or not, I don't think is relevant. But having a job and working for somebody else, that is not something that's hardwired into the human experience. So all you HR people who wonder, okay, why can't people work well as part of a team, or why why are we having so many workplace issues? Like, we're not supposed to. That's it's not what in our I DNA. Heard. It's not in our <laughs> DNA. It's in our DNA to be entrepreneurs. There you go. I'm just I'm kind of building a hypothesis in my mind, and I'm reflecting on generational differences in the workplace, and the and the fact that. You know, there's all this argument that kids these days, they're not loyal. They don't, you know, want to be, well, maybe they're just, maybe they're just not uh, beat down by uh, society yet. And they're just actually just being true to their authentic uh, hard wiring. <laughs> I will tell you this. Let's, let's go to the data. What do we know about, uh, you know, the millennial today? They stay in a job an average of two years. What do we know about the person of the same age in 1980? Well, we know they liked Alf. They liked Hulk Hogan. We know those <laughs> things. Mr. T, probably. But people of the same age cohort in 1980 stayed in a job for two years. It is a part of getting your stuff started in employment that has a very short time horizon, not something necessarily that has to do with this different cohort of people. 
and I'm not saying all the cohorts are exactly the same, but to pretend that it's something entirely new uh, would not would be disingenuous. <laughs> I did love Mr. T. Who didn't? I pity the I, fool that didn't like Mr. T. So, um, total tangent, but I actually introduced my HR intern to Mr. T and uh, and and sh- pulled up a YouTube video as a as an inspirational uh, uh, lesson for her and uh, I'm sure it really changed her perspective on the world but. It, it, it he always will <laughs> oh but what a what a fascinating conversation and I, I sincerely appreciate the approach and uh, the fact that it's data driven and uh, and not an opinion is uh, I think uh, important to highlight here so I do want to shift gears we're rounding the end of our time here so I would like to go into the rebel HR flash round bring it on all right question number one what are you reading right now <laughs> well I read the economist every week and that is the only thing that I read aside from books that I write <laughs> the only <laughs> book in this house right now is my book. <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you've been busy. You've you've been writing a, you've written a couple. You've written two more books than me, I think. So, um, if not multiple more, that's what it got on my list. So, I get that. I get that. All right, question number two: Who should we be listening to? Who should we be listening to? Uh, I think the most appropriate thing to say right now in this point in human history is we should be actually listening to experts and scientists who have done the work and are, are, have spent decades in their field studying things, and we should not be listening to our friends uh, on social media. <laughs> That's who we should be listening to, the actual experts in the space who know what they're talking about. All right, I'm going to be a little controversial for a minute, uh, <laughs> but it's Rebel HR, so I'm supposed to be, and I don't really care if this pisses off our listeners. It's my podcast. Deal with it. So for the person on my Facebook feed who said – Dr. Fauci, he's so stupid. Um, I would just encourage you to go Google the number of degrees and publications that he's done in his life and tell me if you have done that in the same field, and then I'll listen to your views on epidemiology. 100%. (laughs) I mean, who are we going to listen to? The world's leading experts on this? Not to say that they're not fallible. Right. But it's funny because people will say, oh, well, they said this and they said this. Yeah, they changed their mind when new evidence was brought to light. That's what people do. This is an evolving situation that nobody understands. So people's best guesses, I'm going to go with the best guess of the people that know the most and have the most data. Right. No, objective people will change their mind when presented with new data. Fair point. (laughs) All right. Last question here. How can our listeners connect with you? So, you know, we got got some Twitter. Twitter is the only place I actually go by Jeffrey because I couldn't get at Jeff Wald, so it's at Jeffrey Wald on Twitter. Uh, I actually just recently launched my own website, which I'm very excited about, jeffwald.com. I've owned jeffwald.com for about 25 years, and I just finally got a chance to do something with it. When the internet first came out, I went and got it, and every year I've been paying $19.99 to to some web hosting service, and I finally launched something. But uh, LinkedIn is always best, and I'm always happy to connect with people to talk about the future of work, and I certainly advise and consult a lot of companies uh, on their labor force strategies. All right, and we will have all that information in the show notes so that uh, you can get connected with Jeff. I strongly encourage it, and in our conversation here, I just sincerely appreciate the thoughtful and methodical approach 
to what the future of work will look like. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Such a pleasure. Thank you for having me. All right, that does it for the Rebel HR Podcast. A big thank you to our guests. Follow us on Facebook at Rebel HR Podcast, Twitter at Rebel HR Guy, or see our website at rebelhumanresources.com. The views and opinions expressed by Rebel HR Podcast are those of the authors and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of any of the organizations that we No animals were harmed during the filming of this podcast. Baby.